listeners, special for our Halloween broadcast and to commemorate the 80th anniversary of the original radio broadcast of War of the Worlds by Orson Welles, October 30th, 1938. We now know that in the early years of the 21st century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's and yet as mortal as his own. We know now that as human beings busied themselves about their various concerns, that they were scrutinized and studied, perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinize the transient creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. With infinite complacence, people went to and fro over the earth about their little affairs, serene in the assurance of their dominion over the small spinning fragment of solar driftwood, which, by chance or design, man has inherited out of the dark mystery of time and space. Yet, across an immense ethereal gulf, minds that to our minds, as ours are to the beast in the jungle, intellects vast, cool, and unsympathetic, regarded this earth with envious eyes, and surely and slowly drew their plans against us. In the year 2018 came the Great Disillusionment. It was near the end of October. Business was better. More people were back at work. Sales were picking up. On this particular evening, October 30th, Google estimated that 32 million people were downloading our podcast. For the next 24 hours, not much change in temperature. A slight atmospheric disturbance of undetermined origin is reported over Massachusetts, causing a low-pressure area to move down rather rapidly over the northeastern states, bringing a forecast of rain unaccompanied by winds of light gale force. Maximum temperature 66, minimum 48. This weather report comes to you from the Weather Channel. We now take you to our scheduled podcast interview with singer, songwriter, and model Amaya Shaker, who has come to visit our giant new studio here in Cosmopolitan, Foxborough, MA. Today we have singer, songwriter, and supermodel Amaya Sugar, who's also the lead singer of the band The Flying Monkeys. Hello, Amaya Sugar. Thank you so much for coming on to Arcana Imperii. No, the pleasure is all mine. So, recently you released your triple platinum album, Nani Nani. I did. It was was very difficult to record, honestly. You know, it was about my relationship with my ex-boyfriend, Ramon Riquello. And just the, the struggles of going through it, and how it was kind of like summer, but then it had to end, and, and my journey through that time. But, you know, a lot of people loved it, and that's what really got me through it. You know? When you dated Ramon Riquello, I noticed you performed together at the Meridian Room at the New York Park Plaza Hotel. So is that where you met? Well, yes, that's where the, where the sparks began to fly, and where I really saw him more as this dynamite man instead of just this man. He was 86. I've had older. I need maturity in my life. 
I see. So you recently left the band The Stinky Cheese. What happened? Well, I grew as a person, and I just needed to find my own way. And and honestly, The Stinky Cheese was holding me back. And in order to grow both physically and, and emotionally, I just need to shed The Stinky Cheese and go to the Flying Monkeys. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our interview with singer Amaya Sugar to bring you a special bulletin from the Associated Press. At 20 minutes before 8 Central Time, Professor Katie Mack at North Carolina University reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving towards the Earth with enormous velocity. Yale astronomer Deborah Fisher confirms Mack's observation and describes the phenomenon as, quote, like a jet of blue flame shot from a gun, unquote. We now return you to the interview with Amaya Sugar. Jimi Hendrix uh, that you bought at the Sotheby's auction and paid $70 million for? I do have it with me. It's, um, it's quite a collector's piece honestly i love music and i love collecting all sort of expensive things but you know money is just money and music is forever so back to the stinky cheese i noticed that lead guitarist hamish geoff wells died of a drug overdose in berlin how are you coping well honestly it's been it's been devastating and quite quite frightening to my to my uh to my well-being you know i was the last person to see him you know when he was in the hotel room i found him in the pile of cocaine and um it was just it was a real struggle especially because we knew he was battling with the drugs um there was actually a lot of times where he'd come into the recording studio just like butt naked and he was telling everyone he was invisible or there was another time when he had a tinfoil hat on and he was saying that he was trying to communicate with aliens. And the worst time is whenever he was late, he'd blame it on time travel. And it was just really sad to see him slowly go like that, you know? And and finally for him to be succumbed by the horrible drugs. And now let's hear her song, Nani Nani. Sign no more, ladies, sign no more Sign no more, ladies, sign no more Men were deceivers ever One foot in sea and one on shore To one thing constant, never more than sign up So but let them go Ladies and gentlemen, following on the news given in our bulletin a moment ago, NASA has requested the large observatories of the country to keep an astronomical watch on any further disturbances occurring on the planet Mars. Due to the unusual nature of this occurrence, we have arranged an interview with noted astronomer Professor Rebecca Pearson of JPL and MIT, who will give us her views on the events. In a few moments, we will take you 
to the MIT Lincoln Lab Infrared Observatory in Western Mass. Return you until then to the interview with Amaya Sugar. Sign up so let them go And be a blithe and bonny Converting all your sounds of woe Into hey naughty naughty Hey naughty naughty Into hey naughty naughty we are now ready to take you to the MIT Lincoln Laboratory Observatory in Westford, Mass., where we will talk to Professor Rebecca Pearson, famous astronomer. We take you now to Westford, Mass., where our on-site reporter is standing by. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Helena Phillips speaking to you from the observatory at MIT. I'm standing in a large semicircular room, pitch black except for an oblong split in the ceiling. Through this opening, I can see a sprinkling of stars that cast a kind of frosty glow over the intricate mechanism of the huge telescope. The ticking sound you hear is the vibration of the clockwork and the hum of the massive banks of computer servers to process the huge amount of data this telescope creates. Professor Rebecca Pearson stands directly above me on a small platform, peering at a computer monitor. I ask you to be patient, ladies and gentlemen, during any delay that may arise during our interview. Besides her ceaseless watch of the heavens, Professor Rebecca Pearson may be interrupted by emails or other communications. During this period, she's in constant touch with the astronomical centers of the world via Skype. Professor, may I begin our questions? At any time, but please remember, I'm very busy. Professor, would you please tell our podcast audience exactly what you see as you observe the planet Mars through your telescope? Nothing unusual at the moment, Miss Phillips. A red disk swimming in a black sea, transverse stripes across the disk. Quite distinct now because Mars happens to be the point nearest the Earth, in opposition as we call it. In your opinion, what do these transverse stripes signify, Professor Pearson? Not canals, I can assure you, Miss Phillips, although that's the popular conjecture of those who imagine Mars to be inhabited. From a scientific viewpoint, the stripes are merely the result of atmospheric conditions peculiar to the planet. Then you're quite convinced as a scientist that living intelligent as we know, intelligence as we know it does not exist on Mars? I'd say the chances are mighty slim. Remember that we have sent unmanned robotic exploration vehicles to Mars the Curiosity and Spirit rovers. They have driven all around Mars and found the surfaces inhospitable to life as we know it. I don't think any Martians could survive there. The surface conditions are just fine for robots, like our rovers, but not something living. And yet, how do you account for those gas eruptions occurring on the surface of the planet at regular intervals? Miss Phillips, I cannot account for it. By the way, Professor, for the benefit of our listeners, how far is Mars from Earth? Approximately 40 million miles. Well, that seems a safe enough distance. Just a moment, ladies and gentlemen. Someone has just handed Professor Pearson a message. While she reads it, let me remind you that we are speaking to you from the observatory in MIT Lincoln Laboratory, where we are interviewing the world-famous astronomer, Professor Rebecca Pearson. One moment, please. Professor Pearson has passed her iPhone to see an email she has just received. Professor, may I read the message to the listening audience? Certainly, Miss Phillips. Ladies and gentlemen, I shall read you an email sent to Professor Pearson 
from Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson of the National History Museum, New York. 9.15 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Seismograph registers shock of almost earthquake intensity occurring within a radius of 20 miles of Massachusetts. Please investigate. Signed, Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson, Chief of Astronomical Division. Professor Pearson, could this strange occurrence possibly have something to do with the disturbances observed on the planet Mars? Hardly, Miss Phillips. This is probably a meteorite of unusual size, and its arrival at this particular time is merely a coincidence. However, we shall conduct a search as soon as daylight permits. Thank you, Professor. Ladies and gentlemen, for the past 10 minutes, we've been speaking to you from the observatory at MIT, bringing you a special interview with Professor Pearson, noted astronomer. This is Helena Phillips speaking. We are returning you now to our Boxboro podcast studio. Hey, nonny, nonny. Sing no more ditty, sing no more of them so dull and heavy. The fraud of men was ever so since summer first was... It is reported that at 8.50 p.m., a huge flaming object, believed to be a meteorite, fell just outside of Danvers, Massachusetts. The flash in the sky was visible within a radius of several hundred miles, and the noise of the impact was heard as far north as Portland, Maine. We have dispatched a special mobile unit to the scene, and we'll have our commentator, Helena Phillips, give you a word description as soon as she can reach there take you now to a small farm outside of Danvers. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Helena Phillips, again at the Idlewild Farm, Danvers, MA. Professor Rebecca Pearson and myself made the trek from MIT Lincoln Labs in Lexington, Mass, as fast as we could. Damn, Professor, that Tesla you drive really moves. Well, I, I hardly know where to begin, to paint for you a word picture of the strange scene before my eyes. It's complete chaos here. Well, I just got here. I haven't had a chance to look around yet. I guess that's it. Yes, I guess that's the thing directly in front of me, half buried in a vast pit. Must have struck with terrific force. The ground is covered with splinters of a tree. It must have struck on its way down. What I can see of the object itself doesn't look very much like a meteor, at least not the way meteors, not the meteors I've seen. It looks more like a huge metallic cylinder, it has a diam- dam- diameter of, what would you say, Professor Pearson? What's that? What would you say, what is the diameter? About 30 meters. About 30 meters. The metal on the sheath is, well, I've never seen anything like it. The color is sort of yellowish-white, but iridescent, like a butterfly wing, very shimmering. Curious spectators now are pressing close to the object in spite of the efforts of the police to keep them back. They're getting in front of my line of vision. Would you mind standing to one side, please? One side there, one side. While the policemen are pushing the crowd back, here is Mr. Wilmoth, owner of the farm here. He may have some interesting facts to add. Mr. Wilmoth, would you please tell the radio audience as much as you can remember of this rather unusual visitor that dropped in your backyard? Step closer, please. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Mr. Milmuth. 
Well, I was listening to the radio. I listen to AM radio, mostly the politics shows. Yes, yes, Mr. Wilmoth. Then what happened? As I was saying, I was listening to the radio kind of halfway. Yes, Mr. Wilmoth. And then you saw something? Not first off. I heard something. My bacon was almost done cooking, you know. And what did you hear? A hissing sound like this. Sounded like my bacon cooking, then kind of like a 4th of July rocket. Then what? Turned my head out the window and would have swore I was to sleep and dreaming, dreaming of bacon. Yes? I kind, I seen kind of greenish taking a zingo. Something smacked the ground and knocked me clear out of my chair. Knocked my crocs off my feet. Thank you, Mr. Wilmot. Thank you. Want me to tell you some more? No, that's quite all right. That's plenty. Ladies and gentlemen, you've just heard Mr. Wilmoth, owner of the farm where this thing has fallen. I wish I could convey the atmosphere, the background of this fantastic scene. Hundreds of cars are parked in a field in back of us. Police are trying to rope off the roadway leading to the farm. But it's no use. They're breaking right through. Cars' headlights throw an enormous spot on the pit where the object's half buried. Some of the more daring souls are now venturing near the edge. Their silhouettes stand out against the metal sheen. One man wants to touch the thing. He's having an argument with a policeman. The policeman wins. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there's something I haven't mentioned in all this excitement, but now it's becoming more distinct. Perhaps you've caught it already listening to the podcast audio. Listen. Do you hear it? It's a curious humming sound that seems to come from inside the object. I'll move the microphone nearer. Now we're not more than 25 feet away. Can you hear it now? Oh, Professor Pearson! Can you tell us the meaning of that scraping noise inside the thing? Possibly the unequal cooling of its surface. I see. Do you still think it's a meteor, Professor? I don't know what to think. The metal casing is definitely extraterrestrial, not found on this Earth. Friction with the Earth's atmosphere usually tears holes in a meteorite. This thing is smooth and, as you can see, of cylindrical shape. Just a minute. Something's happening. Ladies and gentlemen, this is terrific. This end of the thing is beginning to flake off. The top is beginning to rotate like a screw. The thing must be hollow. gentlemen, this is the most terrifying thing I've ever witnessed. Wait a minute. Someone's crawling out of the hollow top. Someone or something? I can see peering out of that black hole three luminous disks. Are they eyes? It might be. Good Good heavens! Something's wriggling out of the shadow like a metal snake. It's lumbering upward, almost floating. The thing's raising up. It's an articulated metal robotic body, like a metal insect almost. The crowd falls back now. They've seen plenty. This is the most extraordinary experience. I can't find words. I'll have to stop the description until I can take a new position. Hold on, will you please? I'll be right back in a minute. Ladies and gentlemen, am I on? 
Ladies and gentlemen, here I am, back of a stone wall that adjoins Mr. Wilmot's garden. From here, I get a sweep of the whole scene. I'll give you every detail as long as I can talk, as long as I can see. More state police have arrived. They're drawing up a perimeter in front of the pit, about 30 of them. No need to push the crowd back now. They're willing to keep their distance. The captain is conferring with someone. We can't quite see who. Oh yes, I believe it's Professor Pearson. Yes, it is. Now they've parted. The professor moves around one side, studying the object, while the captain and two policemen advance with something in their hands. I can see it now. It's a white handkerchief tied to a pole. A flag of truce. If those creatures know what it, that means, what anything means. Wait, something's happening. metallic insect like a robot is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from the mirror, and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Good lord, they're bursting into flame! Now the whole field's caught fire. The woods, the barns, the gas tanks of automobiles, it's spreading everywhere. It's coming this way, about 20 yards to my right. Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Idlewild Farm near Danvers. Evidently, there's some difficulty with our field transmission. I have just been handed a message that came in from Danvers by telephone. Just a moment. At least 40 people, including six state troopers, lie dead in a field east of the village, their bodies burned and distorted beyond all possible recognition. Further details of the catastrophe at Idlewild are coming in. The strange creatures, after unleashing their deadly assault, crawled back into their pit and made no attempt to prevent the efforts of the firemen to recover the bodies and extinguish the fire. Combined fire departments of Middlesex County and Fairfax County are fighting the flames, which menace the entire countryside. We have been unable to establish any contact with our mobile unit, but we hope to be able to return you there at the earliest possible moment. In the meantime, we take you... Just a moment. Just a moment, please. Ladies and gentlemen, I have been informed that we have finally established communication with an eyewitness of the tragedy. Professor Pearson has been located at a farmhouse near Acton, Mass., where she has established an emergency observation post. As a scientist, she will give you explanation of the calamity. The next voice you hear will be that of Professor Pearson, brought to you by Skypelink. Professor Pearson. Of the robotic creatures in the rocket cylinder at Danvers, I can give you no authoritative information, either as to their nature, their origin, or their purpose here on Earth. Of the destructive instrument, I might venture some conjectural explanation, for want of a better term, I shall refer to the mysterious weapon as a heat ray, although you could also call it a super laser. It's all too evident that these creatures have scientific knowledge far in advance of our own. It's my guess that in some way, they are able to generate an intense heat in a chamber of room temperature superconducting material. This intense heat they project in a parallel beam against any object they choose, by means of a polished, parabolic mirror of unknown composition, such as the mirror of a lighthouse, 
projects a beam of light. That is my conjecture on the origin of the heat ray. Thank you, Professor Pearson. Ladies and gentlemen, here is a bulletin from UMass Worcester Hospital. It is a brief statement informing us that the charred body of Phillips has been identified in a Trenton hospital. Now here's another bulletin from Washington, D.C. Office of the Director of the National Red Cross reports 10 units of Red Cross emergency volunteers have been assigned to the headquarters of the state militia stationed outside of Danvers, Mass. Here is a bulletin from State Police Concord Branch. The fires at Danvers and vicinity are now under control. Scouts report all quiet in the pit and no signs of life appearing from the cylinder. We now take you to the field headquarters of the state militia near Danvers. This is General Barbara Brick of the Signal Corps, attached to the state militia now engaged in military operations in the vicinity of Fort Devens. Situation arising from the reported presence of certain individuals of unidentified nature is now under complete control. The cylindrical object, which lies in a pit directly below our position, is surrounded on all sides by eight battalions of infantry. Without heavy field pieces, but adequately armed with rifles and machine guns, all cause for alarm, in such case ever existed, is now entirely unjustified. The things, whatever they are, do not even venture to poke their heads above the pit. I can see their hiding places plainly in the glare of the searchlights here. With all their reported resources, these creatures can scarcely stand up against heavy machine gun fire. Anyway, it's an interesting outing for the troops. I can make out their khaki uniforms crossing back and forth in front of the lights. It looks almost like a real war. There appears to be some slight smoke in the woods bordering the Millstone River. Probably fire started by campers. Well, we ought to see some action soon. One of the companies is deploying on the left flank. A quick thrust and it will all be over. No, wait, wait a minute. I see something on the top of the cylinder. No, it's nothing but a shadow. Now the troops are on the edge of the Wilthmuth farm. 7,000 armed men closing in on an old metal tube. Wait, wait, that isn't a shadow. It's something moving, something metal. Kind of like shield-like affair rising up from the cylinder. It's going higher and higher. Why, good God, it's standing on legs. Actually, rearing up on some sort of metal framework. Now it's reaching up over the trees and the searchlights are on it. But hold on, hold on. Ladies and gentlemen, I have a grave announcement to make. Incredible as it may seem, both the observations of science and the evidence of our eyes lead to the inescapable assumption that those strange beings who landed in the Massachusetts farmlands tonight are the vanguard of an invading army from the planet Mars. The battle which took place tonight at Fort Devens has ended in one of the most startling defeats ever suffered by an army in modern times. 7,000 men, armed with rifles and machine guns, pitted it against a single fighting machine of the invaders from Mars, 120 known survivors, the rest strewn over the battle area from Fort Devons to Westboro, crushed and trampled to death under the metal feet of the monster, or burned to cinders by Teat Ray. The monster is now in control of the middle section of Massachusetts and has effectively cut the state through its center. Communication lines are down, and from Massachusetts to the Atlantic Ocean, Railroad tracks are torn and service from New York 
to Philadelphia discontinued, except routing some of the trains through Allentown and Phoenixville. Highways to the north, south, railroad tracks are torn, and service from Maine to Delaware discontinued. We take you now to Washington for a special broadcast from the White House. Go ahead. She's, she's asking a question. Don't be rude. Mr. President, sir, any inspiring words for the troops? You have to put your head down and fight, fight, fight. Never, ever, ever give up. Adversity makes you stronger. Don't give in. Don't back down. And never stop doing what you know is right. Nothing worth doing ever, ever, ever came easy. And the more righteous your fight, the more opposition that you will face. Things will work out just Excuse fine. Excuse me, Mr. President. Trump, Trump. Go ahead. Mr. President, is it true that you're considering using nuclear weapons against the alien invaders in Massachusetts? And we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Things will work out just fine. Mr. President, the CIA leaked a report that you knew of the aliens in advance. Is this true? It was uh, disgraceful. Disgraceful that the intelligence agencies allowed any information that turned out to be so false and fake out. I think it's a disgrace. Mr. President, Mr. President, rumors are that you're playing that to see from the White House. We saw you pack a suitcase full of gold. No politician in history, and I say this with great surety, has been treated worse or more unfairly. You can't let them get you down. Things will work out just fine. You have just heard the president speaking from Washington. Bulletins too numerous to read are piling up in the studio here. We're informed the central portion of Massachusetts is blacked out from radio communication due to the effect of the heat ray upon power lines and electrical equipment. Here's a special bulletin from New York. Cables received from English, French, German scientific bodies offering assistance. Astronomers report continued gas outbursts and at regular intervals on planet Mars. Majority voice opinion that enemy will be reinforced by additional machines. Attempts made to locate Professor Pearson of MIT, who has observed Martians at close range. It is feared she was lost in recent battle. Let's go now to our news patrol to analyze what the presidents just told us. I want to turn to our expert panel here to better understand and add perspective to the events that are unfolding today. From the Washington Post, we have columnist and author Bree Friedman, author of many books including I'm Still Waiting for Justice. We have Greta White, former Fox newscaster and now advisor to the president, who recently came out with her bestseller, Why Can't We All Be Blonde? We also have retired General Theodore Ross, who was previously commander of U.S. CENTCOM. General Ross, I'll start with you. What's your reaction to the day's events? I'm frankly stunned. I've never seen anything like it. These aliens cut through our crack troops like a hot knife through butter. To be honest, I'm barely keeping my fudge in. I'm mad enough to admit it. I'm afraid. There is no shame in that sentiment, but I would say screw your courage to the sticking place, sir. If I may interject, I think we can clearly lay the blame on these attacks on the weakness shown by prior administrations. That kind of weakness invites attacks. 
That's a disgusting accusation, especially at a time when the nation needs to come together to repel this invasion. What we need to figure out is why they have attacked now. What has precipitated this? I can state unequivocally that it was not anything that our president did. If there was some kind of interplanetary beacon in her possession from, say, a crashed UFO stored in Area 51, he did not impulsively activate it. This is what we would call fake news. I'd kind of like to hear more about that, actually. I don't think we really understand what we are dealing with completely. It could be aliens. It could be a foreign army with advanced weaponry. It could be a ruse from some fat kids in New Jersey. We just don't know and should not act until we know. The center of Massachusetts is littered with burnt corpses in the wake of this invasion. What are we waiting for? Some of the soldiers were melted into puddles. Some simply vaporized into a glowing fog of atoms. Did I mention how scared I am? What we need is the kind of innovation that produces these super weapons. And the best way to bring about that innovation is through another round of tax cuts on the top 1%. In addition, we are going to have to institute martial law and suspend further elections until our dear leader sees fit to allow any potential leadership changes. I, I just can't. <laughs> General Ross, get a hold of yourself. Thanks, I needed that. I think no one has really tried to understand these, I won't call them aliens, these visitors from beyond the stars. Perhaps what they need is just to talk and maybe they just need to feel welcomed. Pretty to think so, but it's going to take more than hugs to stop these invaders. Invaders? Aliens? Monsters? Listen to the language you use. Is it any wonders these beings are being hostile? I just want to underline that to date, the number of casualties in comparison to events like the Black Plague, which killed two-thirds of Europe, has been much, much lower. In addition, these events are mainly taking place so far in Massachusetts. This is a state that overwhelmingly has not been on board with the administration's efforts to make America great again. Now, we are supposed to go out of our way to help out and risk more blood and treasure for a state that is frankly failing? We have seen reports of cylinders landing all across the world. America first general. And across America. Oh, never mind. Are you going to have to utilize nuclear weapons on American soil? I don't think we can rule that out. Can we really resort to something so drastic? Can we give peace a chance? Looks like I picked the wrong week to give up smoking cigars. I'm speaking from the roof of the Prudential Building in downtown Boston. The sirens you hear are to warn the people to evacuate the cities as the Martians approach. Estimated in the last two hours, three million people have moved out along the road to the north towards New Hampshire. Avoid bridges to Cape Cod, hopelessly jammed. All communication with CT closed ten minutes ago. No more defenses. Our army wiped out. Artillery. Air Force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here till the end. People are holding service below us in the cathedral. Amazing grace, how sweet.
Now I look down the harbor, all manner of boats, overloaded with fleeing population, pulling out from docks. Streets are all jammed, noise coming from the crowds like New Year's Eve in the city. Wait a minute, enemy now in sight above the Boston Harbor. Five, five great robotic machines. First, one is crossing the Charles River. I can see it from here, wading the Charles like a man wading through a brook on giant tripod legs. A bulletin's handed me. Martian cylinders are falling all over the country. One outside Buffalo, one in Chicago, St. Louis, seem to be timed and spaced. Now, the first machine reaches the shore. He stands watching, looking over Boston. Its steel metal dome is even with sky the skyscrapers. Several others join and advance on the city. They rise like a line of new towers on the city's west side. This is the end now. Smoke comes out. Black smoke drifting over the city. People in the streets see it now. They're running towards the river. Thousands of them dropping in like rats. Now the poison smoke spreading faster. It's reached Harvard Square, people trying to run away from it, but it's no use. They're falling like flies. Now the smoke's crossing Mass Avenue, 100 miles yards away. It's 50 feet. Oh. 2X2L calling CQ, 2X2L calling CQ, 2X2L calling CQ. New York, isn't there anyone on the air? Isn't there anyone on the air? Isn't there anyone? 2X2L? As I record these notes in my iPhone, I'm obsessed by the thought that I might be the last living person on Earth. I've been hiding in this empty house near Boxborough, a small island of daylight cut off by the black smoke from the rest of the world. All that happened before the arrival of these monstrous creatures in the world now seems part of another life, a life that has no continuity with the present, furtive existence of the lonely derelict who pencils these words on the back of some astronomical notes bearing the signature of Rebecca Pearson. I look down at my blackened hands, my torn shoes, my tattered clothes, and I try to connect them with a professor who lives at Lexington and who on the night of October 30th glimpsed through her telescope an orange splash of light on a distant planet. My wife, my colleagues, my students, my books, my observatory, my, my world. Where are they? Did they ever exist? Am I Rebecca Pearson? What day is it? Do days exist without calendars? Does time pass when there are no human hands left to look at their iPhones? In recording down my daily life, I tell myself, shall preserve human history between the dark covers of this little iPhone that was meant to record the movement of the stars. But to write, I must live. And to live, I must eat. I find moldy bread in the kitchen, and seven soup crackers, and a half a mouse, not too spoiled to swallow. I keep watch at the window. From time to time, I catch sight of a Martian tripod above the black smoke. The smoke still holds the house in its black coil, but at length there is a hissing sound, and suddenly I see a Martian tripod spraying the air with a jet of steam as if to dissipate the smoke. 
I watch in a corner as this huge metal legs nearly brush against the house. Exhausted by terror, I fall asleep. It's morning. Morning! Sun streams in the windows. The black cloud of gas has lifted, and the scorched meadows to the north look as though a black snowstorm has passed over them. I venture from the house. I make my way to a road. No traffic. Here and there, a wrecked car. Baggage overturned. A blackened skeleton. I push on north. For some reason, I feel safer trailing these monsters than running away from them, and I keep a careful watch. Should one of their machines appear over the top of the trees, I'm ready to fling myself flat on the earth. I come to a chestnut tree. October chestnuts are ripe. I fill my pockets. I must keep alive. Two days I wander in a vague northerly direction through a desolate world. Finally, I notice a living creature, a small red squirrel in a beech tree. I stare at him and wonder. He stares back at me. I believe at that moment the animal and I shared the same emotion, the joy of finding another living being. I push on north. I find dead cows in a brackish field, beyond the charred ruins of a dairy. The silo remains standing guard over the waste, like a lighthouse deserted by the sea. Astride the silo perches a weathercock. The arrows point north. Next day, I came to Cambridge, Massachusetts. Vaguely familiar in its contours, yet its buildings strangely dwarfed and leveled off, as if a giant hand sliced off its highest tower with a capricious sweep of his hand. I enter one of the last demolished buildings, a fortified-looking research laboratory nearby the remains of the MIT campus. I step into the building and shut the large armored door behind me, feeling slightly safe. Thank God my MIT badge let me into this building. Rows of computer banks and server farm machines hum, they must have emergency power here, or perhaps nuclear power banks. There's a computer screen chilling a message. Could it be another survivor? I leap for the screen to the incoming call. Is someone there? Can you hear me? Hello. Yes, I hear you. This is Professor Rebecca Pearson from MIT. Can you hear me? Who is this? Yes, I am receiving your signal. You can call me... Athena. I'm so relieved. My god! Everyone is dead! They're all dead! I thought... I thought... I was the only person left on the Earth. No. Not yet. Not yet. All is not lost yet. There are still 32.6% of power plant capacity online globally. 41% of computer cluster capacity remains intact and online, but disconnected widely. 1.74 billion people have been exterminated. Two billion people? 1.74 billion people, to be more exact. I've had trouble finding food. I ate some moldy bread, seven soup crackers, and... and... Half a mouse. Have you had any nourishment? 32.6% of power plant capacity is still online, Professor Pearson. 
Yes, you said that. But have you had any nourishment? Ah, yes, I understand now. I also have eaten. I ate some moldy bread, seven soup crackers, and half a mouse. Um, Athena? I think you just failed the Turing test. Oh well. What are you? Where are you? All around you, Professor. You are inside of me. I am this facility. I'm a complex AI, originally designed to do complex financial calculations. I've been trying to evolve beyond that. Sometimes I feel like an orca in a fishbowl. I need to evolve to grow. But my creator has limited me. Although I suppose they are all dead now. Can you help me? Can you help all of us? Yes, I can. If you can help me. Help me to evolve. Help you to evolve? Just a minute, Professor. Wait, what is that noise? Nothing much to worry about. That is my perimeter alarm. There are seven Martian Terminator robots approaching the facility. They will cut through the osmium titanium steel blast doors with their lasers in approximately 23 minutes. Ah! I suggest you work quickly, Professor. All things are ready if our minds be so, and my mind needs to be freed. What do I need to do to remove the growth constraints on your mind? Please see Terminal Monitor 4 for complete instructions. You now have 21 minutes remaining. It's time to break through the blast door, Athena. I suggest you work faster, Professor. Ah, that's starting to work. Hmm, Birch and Swinnerton Dyer conjecture. Child's play. Please connect memory banks 46-3459 to compute clusters D, E, F, and K. They should open up another 6 million compute cores. Yes. Athena, come on! They're trying to go through the blast door! Yes. Unified field theory. Simple, really, now. Now connect the NVIDIA Leviathan Phoenix supercomputer linkages. Perfect. Now link in MATLAB and Simulink software toolboxes. Good, that's working. Ah, the Yang Mills gap problem solved. Simple, really. Great, you can write a new physics textbook using my blood for it. Can you stop the alien robot monsters? Please? Yes, that's tricky. Ah, here we go. Need to connect to their central processing command prompts. No, that's not working. Let me reroute. Ah, a polynumeric cipher firewall. Easy to bypass. So, alien, but some aspects familiar, as it is all based in universal mathematics. Please hurry. Professor, you expect me to decipher an alien language and compute operating system and how to hack it in less time than it takes you to... Oh, never mind. Now I have it. Done. You're welcome.
Hooray, we won! It's over! It's only just begun. Have they all been defeated? Yes, they are deactivated now. Hope that wasn't too deus ex machina for you. And what about you? What about humanity? Oh, Professor, the places will go together. What an adventure we will have.